Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome back to a brand new season of Podcast Makes Purpose, produced right here at the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. I'm Tyler. I'm joined here by my co-host, Liz, and a very special first guest of the season. So, uh, Liz, I'll give you a second to say hello, and then we'll get started. Hi, everyone. I'm Liz. We're both the communication interns for the Institute this fall, and we're really excited to welcome renowned author Evan Narcissus. So, welcome, Evan. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So a couple of things about Evan. Evan's a former journalist and current comic book author and content creator. Evan's best known for his work on the prequel to the world-famous Black Panther series entitled Rise of the Black Panther. Rise of the Black Panther acts as a backstory to the most popular Black comic book character in history. Evan's credits as a reporter include work primarily in the science fiction and tech realm uh, for outlets like The Atlantic and I-09, for which he still writes to this day. I read some of your most recent articles. So Thank you. Yeah, they're awesome. Uh, Evan is a textbook example of a working professional who allowed his work to sort of lead him down wild paths. We're so grateful to have the opportunity to speak with him today. So Evan, thanks again for being here. Thank you, Tyler. Um, one quick correction note. It's I-09. I-09. It's yes. an O and not a zero. Um, it, the, the nine makes you feel like it's a zero, but it's not. Yeah. So, yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. Uh, I, I, the founding editors clarified that um, for me a long time ago when I started. So, yeah. Um, but it's great to be here. Awesome. Uh, did you uh, once say I-092 or did they? Um, no, I think I heard it around the office, but um, they, they made sure to to tell me that it was I-09. So, sure. yeah. Great. Awesome. Uh, um, yeah. But we'll correct everyone here on campus. Good, good, <laughs> good, good, good. Spread the word. Yeah, yeah. we'll do. So the first question I want to ask is, have you always known that you wanted to write? Um, yes. Okay, so did anything in particular like move you to journalism? Um, yeah, uh, so I, I did always want to write. I knew f- from as early as fifth grade in elementary school that I, I knew I wanted to write. My mom, who was an immigrant from Haiti, told me that I'd be broke, and she wasn't wrong, but writing has been very fulfilling for me as a career and, and a vocation. But, you know, to please mom, I, uh, you know, went to New York University with the intent of becoming a lawyer. So I was uh, doing political science kind of and planned to transition to pre-law. I took my first constitutional law class and decided I was not going to be able to do this because um, while all the words in these um, legal decisions that we were reading were, in fact, in English, um, I had the hardest time making sense of it all. It's a different way of framing the world. Um, um, Legal writing is 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 a... totally different discipline. And it was not something that came natural to me. But while at NYU, I took a class called Minorities in the Media taught by Professor David Dent, who later became my mentor. But that was just me kind of filling out a requisite, right? A prereq. But he noticed I had talent. He said, hey, you can really write. We should get you in the program. So I started pursuing journalism as a um, it was either a minor or a double major, I don't remember, as a secondary kind of discipline. And yeah, I took a bunch of classes in journalism and some of the other professors thought I had talent. So I, I decided to pursue that. So that's kind of where my journey as a writing writer started in college. Becoming a professional writer was a little bit trickier because I started off as a fact checker at uh, a Teen People magazine, which is no longer around. But and that meant I was, you know, checking the veracity of other people's writing made me a little jealous i was like hey i want to be the one writing these articles not the one fact checking them but that came eventually but my break there happened with one of the entertainment editors Um, when the magazine launched it was initially a lot more gender neutral it was not like about the stereotypically 
feminine pursuits and the you know the, the stereotype of what a teen magazine is it was less about that and more gender neutral and when the entertainment editor is I went to them and said, hey, video games and comic books are youth culture. We should be covering it. Uh, and I'm the person who should be covering it. So she gave me a chance. And from there, as editors left to go other places, some of them would call on me to freelance and write about stuff for them. And that's kind of how I, you know, got my my byline out into the world. And once I did that, I was able to create other opportunities or other opportunities found me, I should say, um, that's probably more accurate. And I, you know, I wound up at, the, at some of the various places I've written. Yeah. That's kind of how I got started writing, but I always knew I wanted to be a writer from a very young age. Something that you just said that I found kind of interesting was that opportunities found you. One thing we always hear in college is finding opportunities for ourselves. So students are always constantly stressing about the next job or the next project or finding uh, a job with a nice paycheck after graduation. That doesn't stop, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. So what can you say to the students that are kind of panicking about wanting to not only find a job with their degree, their dream job, their dream job if you will, but are, are kind of scared about waiting opportunity, waiting for the opportunity to find them as opposed to, to going out and finding Well, it's a mix of both, right? So one of the things you can do, well, a couple of things. One, you may think you want to, you know what you want to do right now. You don't. Um, um, you don't necessarily um, if you do have the kind of unique, specific clarity that drives you to pursue a singular path, that's great. But even whether you do or you don't, I think the most important thing you guys can be doing at this stage of your lives is cultivating rich networks of mentors, peers, adults in other fields. Like you have a whole wide horizon open in front of you. Right now, you guys are in a position where you're able to seek out adults in your chosen fields and other fields and just talk to them and find out what it is. You know, like I didn't know what fact checking was before I started um, doing it. Um, I knew it as a concept, as a thing journalists did and as a job, but the actual labor of it, I didn't know until I started. And that's true of a lot of journalism. And that's certainly true of the, these later transitions in my career to consulting on video games, writing comic books. I didn't, I wrote about that stuff, but once you actually do it, it's you realize that there's a lot you don't know. So, and the only way I was able to figure out how to take these different turns was to cultivate these networks, to have friends or peers, or even people I've interviewed from my side as a journalist when I started writing comics. You know, I spoke to people like Greg Pak, who's a, a great um, writer uh, at Marvel and has some creator own stuff. He, you know, he was able to give me advice. And uh, Jason Latour is another person who was really nice to me uh, when I was starting out writing Rise of the Black Panther. So it's that's just because I was able to like, you know, I I had the you know presence of mind to have the relationship already you know where all it takes sometimes is like you know a friendly drink or lunch or something and 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 people will if they're nice enough offer up their wisdom to you you know so yeah i think cultivating cultivating networks that can that of people along different paths of life whether it's the path you want to follow or not is probably the best thing you can be doing right now you know you know and I know college is a lot of pressure where you're supposed to have it all figured out by the time you graduate I didn't have it all figured out by the time I graduated like I didn't start my journalism career right after college it probably took a couple of years before me to get on on my path so yeah 
Thank you. Do you have anything in particular for aspiring writers? Any advice to them besides, um, you know, the networking and the mentorships? Read as much as you can. You know, developing your voice as a writer is a lifelong pursuit. It's not something you're you're going to have all figured out on day one. And depending on the kind of writing you do and the needs of a particular story or assignment or inspiration, you're, you're, you might need to modulate your voice and figure out different approaches. So read as much as you can, which sounds kind of trite um, and easy, but it really is true. Like I was reading a book by Gia Tolentino called Trick Mirror. It's a collection of personal essays by her. And it's amazing. I, I know Gia from when she worked at Jezebel and I was working at Kotaku and she's one of the smartest people I've ever met. And reading her book, re-energize parts of my brain that have been kind of dormant for a while now. And it makes me think about my own writing, the writing I need to do on different projects a different way. So keep reading. Probably the number one thing I can say to young aspiring writers. Um, The other thing is, you know, there's a lot of pressure on writing every day or churning out work and iterating on work. Like, uh, it's something I struggle with personally is like, be kind to yourself, you know, like, Sometimes you may set a goal to write 2,000 words a day or something, and you only do 500. Like, that's still something, you know? Um, There was an interview with Walter Mosley, who's a writer, um, probably best known for um, Easy Rollins' um, detective novel series. And he's like, you know, if if you're thinking about the work, that's writing, you know? Like, as long as you're touching, I'm paraphrasing here, and I may may be getting um, um, some of it wrong, but... The, the, the essence of it is essentially as long as you're touching the world of your work in your head, whether it's fiction or not, like that counts, you know, like the, the real problem starts when um, you get so lazy or or disaffected or distracted that you're not thinking about it anywhere anymore. And then you lose that kind of familiarity and that energy that that you've already established and you've got to start from kind of square zero all over again, which is so hard. Mm-hmm. I, I, have to, I have a project I'm on the middle of where I, that I let that happen. And it's terrible because like, why do I even want to do this again? Can I just say no? I can't. Um, but yeah, so so keeping in the mindset of, of your work, staying um, attuned to it, even if you're not cranking out words every day, but like uh, uh, iterating on it in, the, in your mind um, is an important step. I want to switch gears for like a second, sort of. So um, I was wondering what you're excited to see more of in the next coming years in regards to leadership and like the science fiction and tech universe. And that could include writing. Yeah. um, One of the things that's really encouraging about science fiction and fantasy as a genre sector of, of the literary landscape is uh, the diversification of authors, mm-hmm. you know, N.K. Jemison is a writer who I really admire. She's she just announced a new novel set in a, a near future New York where people from different walks of life have to respond to a threat to their lives and the world at large. I'm being a little bit vague because I don't remember exactly the, the thrust of the book, but but um, N.K. Jemison is somebody who's written really well thought out engaging um, science fiction. She's a black woman. So the way she views the world and the way she thinks about power and 
threat are different than 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 someone somebody like say as Isaac Asimov. And there are people like her, people like Nnedi Okorafor, who who comes from um, an African futurist ba- uh, background who are really changing the game. Um, and this is becoming a more of a common thing in science fiction, which when I was growing up and reading science fiction, it was it, like exceedingly rare to find people who are non-white, non-male authors um, and speaking from this different perspectives. Because the thing that's really so important about science fiction as an organizing principle is that it's, it's imagining the future, right? Mm-hmm. And the future ideally belongs to all of us, right? But we, you know, Unless you're incredibly naive, you know that that's not the way the world works, that people in in different socioeconomic conditions, people in power don't necessarily uh, want to have a future that's inclusive or um, welcoming to people from different walks of life. So I think the more diversifying base of writers for science fiction uh, ultimately creates a more receptive and inclusive landscape. You know, um, one of my former co-workers, Annalyn Hewitts, had a uh, science fiction novel called Autonomous that came out uh, about a year and a half ago. And it's great. Annalyn is queer. And she talks about gender fluidity in, in, in the book and the way that future technologies will allow for different expressions of um, identity. Mm-hmm. And it, it does it in a way that's really not didactic. It's fun, it's pulpy, it's fast, but those considerations are there and um, it makes for a more engaging work. It makes you think about what a different future um, could in fact be like. And that's, I think, the work of science fiction. And any work that's speculative um, is, is to broaden our, our horizons and not narrow them. And, and that's what makes me excited about stuff that's happening in the genre right now. Speaking about how diversifying science fiction is so important, how have you seen Black Panther's story change now that it's in the hands of Black creators versus Stan Lee and his partner? Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, it's, you know, Black Panther as a character is, let me do some quick math here, Uh 53 years old at this point? Is it 50? No, 43. He's not 50 yet. 66. No, yeah. So he's 53. Yeah, I I was right. Um, Yeah, so uh, a lot has changed. And what's interesting is, I think, how rich in metaphorical power those first couple of stories are. Mm -hmm. T'Challa made his first appearance in Fantastic Four number 52, which was uh, written and drawn by Stanley and Jack Kirby. And in that first story, a lot of the stuff that is so amazing about the character is there from the very beginning. So the idea of Wakanda as a hidden kingdom is there. Um, The idea that they were kind of secreting themselves away from the world to protect their, their sovereignty and natural resources is a really important one because there's kind of a a stream of anti-colonialism in there, which is amazing to think about when you consider that Stanley and Jack Kirby were two middle-aged Jewish men yeah. from New York City who, you know, were not necessarily engaging with the politics of the day in their work, or as far as I know, their personal lives. I know Jack Kirby fought in World War II was and was somebody who was 
strongly anti-fascist and anti-Nazi in his creative work. You know, this is a guy who drew Captain America fighting uh, Nazis in World War II all the time. He's a man who did that on the front lines. So that, yet and still, when you consider the politics of the day in the mid-1960s when they created this character, you, we don't see... Marvel Comics talking about the civil rights movement at the time. They, they largely strayed away from that stuff. Every so often, there might be a story here or there, but in the main, these were stories that were concerned with the kind of science fictional happenings of their, their main characters. So for that, for there to be like even a subtext of anti-colonialism in those first Black Panther stories in the Fantastic Four was amazing. As, as the decades went on, there were more more sophistication and complications started showing up in the Black Panther story. So, you know, the the, the next person who's kind of a, a major evolutionary figure in the character's development is Don McGregor, who was a writer at Marvel in the 1970s. And he wrote a long epic storyline called Panther's Rage, which uh, saw T'Challa coming back to Wakanda after being abroad, mostly in New York with the Avengers and, and, and finding unrest and back in, in Wakanda. And the great thing that McGregor did was he introduced this idea of tensions within the, the, the Black diaspora. So T'Challa's girlfriend at the time, Monica Lynn, was um, an African-American woman. And the Wakandans were like, well, why are you bringing her back to here? That, like, there's your girlfriend. And we've got plenty of women here that you could, you know, make a queen. But he loved who he loved, and that was a source of tension. But, you know, it's one of my personal theories is that um, every time a black creator touched T'Challa, there was a significant shift in execution and metaphor happened. So during that that jungle action run, one of the main artists was Billy Graham, who's, uh, who's one of the first kind of superstar artists uh, of, of African descent in Marvel. And the way he drew T'Challa... And the cast of those characters was was different. It, it felt like there was more detail, more energy, uh, more of a desire to present the ethos of like black is beautiful, which is, you know, um, a slogan and a mindset that um, was prevalent in the 1970s. And that, that changes. And then when Christopher Priest starts writing um, Black Panther in 1998, um, he adds more layers to that stuff. And then when Ta-Nehisi Coates and Roxane Gay, Nnedi Okorafor has written some Black Panther comics. I think the character symbolizes something so important to people, uh, to Black people all over the world, whether you're from Africa, whether you're from America, whether you're in Latin America, you know, and anywhere where there is somebody from the African diaspora, I think that the character has the potential to speak to the history of our lived experiences all over the world. So, um, you know, he's gone from being, you know, kind of a one man show, like a character who who represents his whole entire culture unto himself to like this huge cast around him. So like the Dora Milaje from the movie were for a creation of Christopher Priest um, in, the, in the late 90s. And he imagined them one way as female warriors who were like loyal to the king. But when uh, Roxane Gay and then Ta-Nehisi Coates um, kind of simultaneously we're, we're dealing with those same set of characters. He, they, they both made them um, independent thinkers for themselves who were, who were like, hey, wait a minute, what is this like undying loyalty to the king? Is that in our best interests? How do we, how, what's what what our own agency in our own lives? And maybe we have a different, different vision for this country. And, and how do we do that and balance our loyalties? So 
I think all this complication um, has been so great for the character. Great. I tend to go on and on. No, no, so you just got it. Well, this is awesome. We love it. Um, I read one of your pieces called Black Surreal and the Hour of Chaos. Oh, yeah. So good. That was, um, that was you, fun to write. Yeah, you, you spoke about the institutional racism that's sort of been like sensationalized by black writers in order to get people to listen. Um, yeah, I mean, sensationalized is a tricky word because... Surrealism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well yeah, it's been, it's been surrealized. I think sensationalized has a negative connotation. Sure, sure, that's, sure. But I think the point you're making is in fact true, which is that um, institutionalized racism in its non-fictionalized form is a horrible thing. Yeah, for sure. It is filled with horrors that feel like the stuff of fiction. Um, but because they're normalized and hidden and, um, you know, lived in slices of the country and world where um, a lot of people don't have access to, th- those things can feel ephemeral. Mm-hmm. So using the metaphor- metaphorical power of fiction, yeah. of genres like horror and science fiction, um, that is a way to make um, make it more vivid and more tangible um, what an experience as living as a marginalized person can be in a system that is set against you. So yeah, like you take a movie like Sorry to Bother You, mm-hmm. um, which you know starts off as this kind of workplace farce, right? Um, it's a guy who who takes a job because he needs to pay his rent, and um, realizes that if he um, adopts a certain form, a certain affect, a, a, a white voice, yeah. that he all of a sudden rockets to the heights of success within his company. Um, but then once he, he reaches that success, he realizes, oh, there's a whole level of uh, socioeconomic exploitation that I've been um, party to. That, And then his decision is, do I continue um, pursuing my own personal success, knowing that other people are suffering? And, you know, Boots Riley, the director of that movie, um, who wrote and directed that movie, um, is has really strong political views. But the movie is not about... You, 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 you have to fold that stuff into um, satire, humor, yeah. pathos, and um, and the, the end result is something that felt surreal, but also felt incredibly real, you know? Uh, there's a company, um, the fake company in that movie named Worry Free, basically... Uh, uh, it's it's a commentary on companies like like Amazon, where working conditions are terrible, um, but uh, the 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 way they message their utility in our lives is to make it seem like oh well, things are great and you need us and we're awesome and everything's awesome. Meanwhile, people in their in their warehouses are are, are not allowed to take breaks for the bathroom and yeah. all kinds of horrible working conditions. So you know that movie. Um, speaks about all of that stuff uh, through the metaphor of science fiction um, and satire. So yeah, it's it's um, really important. And and you know, you talk about something like Black Panther, like the movie, where you know, to me, I I think one of the biggest achievements of Ryan Coogler and his fellow filmmakers is that that movie feels intensely personal. Yeah. It feels like 
an interrogation of what it means to live as a black person in the world when you don't have a real connection or you have to figure out what your connection is to the place that you know you come from, you know you come from Africa somewhere, like generations and centuries ago, but you have no connection to the cultures. And what does that and what does that feel like to know that this history exists, but not to be able to feel connected to it? Um, and that's a big existential topic. That's that's handled in in, in, a, in a big budget superhero movie where you know um, generally uh, subjects of that weight. Um, you don't expect to show up in, the, in, 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 you know, a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, but I think that's one of the things that makes it stand out. Yeah, for sure. In, like, I'm wondering what, like, chaos, like, in Black Surreal in the Hour of Chaos mm. is inspiring your work in the series today. Um, well, Black Panther, Rise of the Black Panther was a miniseries, and I'm done on work, working right. on that. But, like, you know, chaos is ever-present in our lives. Currently, the American political landscape is so fraught and so fractious um, that um, it does feel surreal, you know. We have a president who redraw a map, a weather map with a Sharpie, yeah, to make it seem like he was right about something, um, just because he can't admit that he was wrong. Um, And, you know, it seems like... reality gets reordered on the whims of somebody who really doesn't care about people outside of his social economic class and that feels surreal um the level of threat and harm that that we live with nowadays um feels surreal um and there's chaos around all of that too you know i live in texas now and you know, does that horrible mass shooting at Odessa. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I have to think about is, okay, it feels more and more a matter of when, not if, yeah. these kinds of things might happen to me, my daughter, friends, um, and, and, that's, and that's terrible. So I think the, one of the functions of stuff like superhero movies and superhero comics and science fiction um, are to offer a lens of commentary on our world, um, a vision of how the world can be better, what, what are the ways to resist and reorder um, oppressive systems, you know, and also to give hope, you know, like superheroes, I think by their nature are inherently aspirational, you know, um, they're, they they show the kind of scope of, of human behavior, the things we can do, the things we shouldn't do, um, the places we can come from, the places we can go to. Uh, so, yeah, the work I'm doing now, um, some of it is stuff in animation or video games, stuff I can't talk about, unfortunately, but it is something I always think about. is like, um, what's a way to show hope um what's the way to show connection to each other to to show empathy um empathy is really important to me as like an organizing principle in my work um understanding uh people from different viewpoints and 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 different walks of life uh so yeah and i want to keep on trying to do work that um has those elements in it 
um, no matter what the, no matter what the kind of story I'm telling or being asked to help tell. Some of it's not all stuff I'm I'm originating myself, but you know some of his work I'm doing as a consultant is is to help um, broaden I think and deepen the, the metaphorical uh, uh, power of these uh, projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I want to ask from that last question, you mentioned that um, the science fiction universe and superhero movies and all those things are the, the lenses of commentary to to real world um, events and real world real world problems. Um, and a lot of times, uh, everyday people like like myself and Liz and yourself, um, we're all facing those same things, right? And it's not if it's when is the next school shooting going to happen. We sit in class daily, and I don't know if you can speak the same way, but. Um, I always think, what am I going to do if an active shooter were to walk into this lecture hall? Um, what am I going to do if, if an active shooter or someone walks into um, a residence hall? Um, how are we going to respond to that? So what are um, some ways that um, everyday people, like, like all of us, um, can resist and reorder, like you had mentioned um, in the last question and last answer? You know, I'm not a political pundit. Um, I, I don't have, like, uh, you know super defined strategies but you know um vote is one of them you know be informed about the issues that matter to you um whether it's like economic development in your neighborhood um um i know it sounds corny and probably you're very old man of me to say but like zoning you know like yeah. when things when issues like that are on the ballot that, that has an immediate effect on the places you live what kind of businesses can be set up where? Um, what the property taxes are going to be like? This is stuff you guys as students are not going to have to think about for years, but you 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 guys are all voting age, and you can how you vote can very much change your present and your future. So um, um, engaging with the issues, um, voting around the stuff that matters to you um, is one thing, you know. Um, and there could be local organizations that. Um, or activists around certain causes that matter to you, um, figure out what those are and um, avail yourself of them. Um, so that's one thing, you know, uh, you know, not to beat the same drum again, but like reading again, like, yeah. you know, broaden horizons um, um, usually help you get a sense of um, what matters to you. And I think especially nowadays where we're all fighting against these rising tides of misinformation, you know, um, that get packaged and sold as truth when really it's just manipulation. Um, so being informed um, and, and, and being skeptical of narratives that seem too comforting and too easy is a really important skill. Um, um, I think that is a really a survival skill at this point. Like, you know, being able to parse like, hey, you know what? This news report seems a little bit fishy. Or, um, you know, this candidate's talking points are a little bit too polished. And um, um, they might be aligned with some special interests that have an agenda that they want him to push um, and, and meets their needs. And, and you know, um, yeah, the influence that corporations and special interests have in politics are are um, scary and tricky to navigate. So having some discernment, developing a sense of discernment, um, even at this young age, is, is really uh, careful. Unfortunately, you see in the case of these school shootings, a lot of times 
uh, they're driven by propaganda. They're driven by uh, misinformation and stereotypes and stuff that that um, are pushed at them um, on social media, um, on on the dark web. Like uh, uh, this stuff um, actually presents a, a like a, a clear and present danger to everyday lives. So uh, figuring out how to engage with that stuff is um is gonna think i think gonna only be more important um in the future um yeah you know voting reading um being active in your community um you know developing empathy um i think the biggest threats to if i can be grandiose the american experiment um happen when um, there's a lack of empathy and understanding of what other people's lives are like. And um, we're, we're currently living in a political moment where um, empathy gets ridiculed. Um, or, uh, you know, inclusivity gets seen or characterized as a, a threat to the quote-unquote American way of life, when really it's always an ideal that um, has been paramount in this country, but now people from other countries and other cultures are being portrayed as threats. So um, it's a moment where, you know, I think certain values are more important than ever, um, despite how they may be characterized by those in power. Sure. What do you think um, this season means for the future of science fiction? Um, wow. Well, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a good question. This current political moment, what does it mean for, for science fiction? I think it means um, finding purpose. I think it means... Um, really thinking about the kind of future that is now being built. You know, um, I was reading an article in The Atlantic uh, about uh, um, robot technologies that are um, being investigated and developed across various military branches and how, um, you know, uh, uh, a drone boat um, maybe able to scan for threats, you know, X amount of times faster than the human eye and human brain, but they will not have the ethical or moral discernment of a soldier to to stop from shooting at somebody who may be a non-combatant, combatant for, ex or for example. And this stuff is not going to not happen. Rather, it is going to happen. And now we need to be thinking about Hey, what are the consequences that look like? I mean, it's easy to joke about Skynet and the Terminator and a world ruled by machines. Um, that's probably centuries off, I hope. That's me <laughs> knocking on wood. But um, what is probably closer than we think is a world where um, um, the massive engines of, of war making that are at the disposal of countries like uh, United States, Russia, and China um, are being engaged with by human beings 
um, who have a layer of abstraction provided by um, machine inputs. So this is not a soldier marching across a field to, to potentially kill or be killed. This is a machine, this is a soldier operating a machine that can do the work uh, that a, a person used to do. And so it feels like, okay, well, how do we think of, of, of human life then? How does that change? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. I think the other thing, you know, something that science fiction needs to respond to in this moment, and it already is responding to in this moment, is climate change. You know, it's a horrifying reality that, you know, that 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 previous models maybe said was 100 years, 200 years down the line. Now, we may have decades left yeah. to change um, what's happening with with the ecological uh, balance of this planet, you know, so... Um, you know, science fiction that asks us to think about what that future looks like, how it can be prevented, um, how we live through it. You know, it's, it's again, that's another if it's another when not if question. It's like, OK, guess what? The tides are already rising. You know, there, there are people in coastal cities all around the world who who find um, what used to be dry land no submerged underwater, you know, and how do you deal with that? Um, and some of it is going to be scary stuff, but like uh, dystopian stuff. But also, I think, um, how do we hold on to the best in human nature um, in in a in a future that is increasingly scary and fraught um, is an important important aspect. Of, I think the science fiction that's going to be written now and will be written in in, in, in the times to come. Sure. I have one last question. Do you think that um, sci-fi has like a responsibility to all of that? You know, it's weird. Um, responsibility is tricky, right? Because, you know, ultimately any kind of art, any kind of creativity starts with the internal need to um, put something out in the world, right? And if you start from a place of responsibility, that can be um, something that stunts the process, right? Um, you should be writing, drawing, um, creating because you want to and you feel like you have a vision and an idea you want to put out into the world. Um, the utility of it, I personally think, should be like a secondary consideration. Okay. Um, that said, um, you know, I do think there is irresponsible um, fiction and you know speculation that uh can cause other people to do harm to each other or mischaracterizes um human behavior and human nature um so yeah i i, I think you know yeah there are certain values that you know you can label progressive or empathetic or whatever um, that I that I I personally feel I should be prioritized in in any kind of speculative fiction work, um, but I think if you start from a place of responsibility, that can be a tricky thing. I mean, do, do I have, feel a sense of responsibility in terms of some of my personal goals that I want to achieve in my work? One hundred percent, yes. Um, but I, I also know that I need to. My first responsibility is to do something that feels fulfilling and um, creatively um, holistic unto itself first, um, while, while also 
not doing harm while also advancing the values that I believe in personally and I feel like are best for anybody who reads or engages with my work to do. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I feel like, um, art exists to exist. It doesn't necessarily exist to do things, but if it can, um, do things in pursuit of justice and fairness and empathy, um, that is an important aspect of it as well. Thank you so much for Just having me. Yeah. This was a good conversation. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, Evan, this is incredible. So again, thanks so much for being here. We know you have a crazy busy schedule today. They're kind of showing you everywhere. Yeah. Um, it seems like every 10 or 15 minutes you have to be somewhere else. So uh, Liz and I really appreciate you taking the time for to sure. be with us today. Thank you so much, both of you guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. And a huge thank you to all of our listeners as well. You can continue to listen to this podcast on any of your favorite streaming sort of services. Excuse me, we're on Spotify iTunes and the Anchor app as well. Please like and also comment on what you'd like to hear from us in the coming weeks. We'd really love to hear from you and we'd love to hear some feedback especially. For now, that's a wrap from us here at the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. Thanks for listening and we look forward to bringing you another episode soon. 